Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here at the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM, every Monday at 10 a.m. And today, my special guest is Brian Francis Culkin, a writer, cultural theorist, and film director. Brian, how are you? I'm very well, John. Thank you for having me on your show. Great. So I see in your uh, bio that you have a background in film and then also in business. How did you go from business to being a cultural theorist? Yeah. Well, to be honest with you, um, I guess in one sense, I was, I, I think I've, I've always had a creative streak in me my whole life. And I think um, after I graduated from college, I got involved in the financial world and it just, after about six or seven years, it became, you know, I, I did have some success doing it and I, and I think I had some talent doing it, but it was just not something that I really felt that was aligning with who I was as a human being. And I, when I turned 30, I, I had almost like a cri- like a existential crisis, a, a breakdown. Mm. And I said, I just can't do this anymore. And that was the um, impetus that, move me into writing and film and kind of what I'm doing now. Right. So that's, that's basically it. Um, uh, you know, cr- crises tend to lead to new uh, directions in our lives. And I think that's just kind of what happened to me. Pretty simple. So <laughs> yeah. how would you describe what you mean by being a cultural theorist? Well, I think a cultural theorist are, is somebody who tries to analyze and, and bring forth new narratives of what's happening in culture today. And I, I think that's, you know, in today's situation, I don't think that's ever been more important. I mean, we're, we're living in a time of, um, of mass confusion, of, of mass, um, you know, the, 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 the newfound synchronization of capitalism and computational technologies that is manifested itself in things like social media has has infiltrated the collective neurology at least the way i see it certainly in the american psyche and and in many ways the global psyche as well and it has created a um a sense of confusion a sense of you know the the a great term that we hear now all the time is fake news which is emblematic of a culture that has lost its narrative ability so I think a cultural theorist is somebody who's trying to make sense of what's happening using the tools of philosophy, of history, of anthropology, of a very of kind of synthesizing various disciplines, and then trying to bring forth a, an analysis and an, and most importantly a narrative of what's happening. So you know I've I've written seven books so far, and they range in topics from gentrification to an analysis of the Trump presidency to the, I wrote a book on the, on the American heroin epidemic. I wrote a book on the history of boxing. Um, so all, all these things um, 
you know, I'm, 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 I'm applying this kind of broad cultural theory into particular instances, but, but ultimately I'm, I'm trying to make sense of, uh, of what's happening, not just for my readership, but for myself as well. I mean, I'm, I'm just a totally, um, you know, taken, taken aback by everything that's happening in the world today. So, 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 so I got a, I got a question. What's happening? Sure. <laughs> what's happening? Well, what is happening? That's a, <laughs> So let me let me uh, preface that with something else. And uh, <clears throat> is it really more confusing, difficult, whatever, whatever, than it was 20, 50, 100 years ago? Uh, oh. Or are we self-indulgent? And well, what, how bad is it? Well, what, what makes it more confusing? What makes it feel more confusing? I mean, I, I think the world has always been maybe a bit confusing. There's always been questions of what are, what are we doing here? Why are we here? What's what's happening in the world? But I think what, what makes it feel so more manic and confusing today is the proximity that our mind, our, our neurology, our, our psyche has to computational technologies, to algorithms, to corporate-induced um, digital networks. This proximity that the human psyche has today to these incredibly powerful uh, networks that are intimately linked to, to the logic of globalized capitalism has created this sense of panic, of, of, of mania. Of, and then that, of course, manifests in, in a, a whole range of psychopathologies, depression, anxiety, uh, and then in a more extreme sense, bipolarism, schizophrenia, so, so on and so forth, mental illness. So I think to your point, you know, the sun rises every morning at 6 a.m. And it's done that, and it was doing that 10,000 years ago at the dawn of the Neolithic era, and it's doing it now at the dawn of the uh, era of 21st century globalized capitalism. But the fact is, our sense of confusion has been heightened by our relation to these new forms of technology. Um, so it depends on what way you want to look at it. But, but the fact is, it does feel more confusing. Whether or not it is or not, that's a debatable point. But it definitely feels that way. So let, that, me, let me get very sure. specific. Sure. Uh, when you log on to Facebook, what do you see, what do you experience, and what's your take on what's going on? Um, what do I, what do in I, other words, I, I thought Facebook was supposed to be linking me to uh, a group of friends. And instead, sure. I find news feeds and commercials and advertising and yeah. uh, debates about politics that I'm not interested in. Yeah. Uh, how, how they do, what are they doing to us? <laughs> Well, that I, that's the progression of Facebook, right? Facebook was was founded in 2004 in a dorm room in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by a freshman at Harvard University who was trying to get even with his girlfriend, right? That's how the that's that's the mythology of Facebook, and the initial logic of Facebook was to create this kind of democratized space of virtual friendship where you can connect with people and and you could have conversation and you could be social, but that was following, you know, this 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 new logic that was developing at that time based on networks, 
based on the collapse of the industrialized mode of capitalism, which was, you know, the the um, the breakdown of the factory and the office building for networks for these this open systems of communication. Um, and and Facebook is is emblematic of that ideology. Now, when it first came out, it had this feeling of freedom, this feeling of connectivity, this, and I think at that hit a, the the logic of Facebook hit a peak in 2011 with Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, these things where where social media and you know Twitter, Facebook, whatever, it was seen as a tool for de democratization. It was seen as a tool for opening up society. It was seen as a, as as a as a medium. For connecting people and i think in 2019 we see that that is not true it's not even close to being true and in fact these these networks and these sites of social media are actually becoming tools of a totally new kind of domination whereas in the past political domination was seen in a hierarchical sense you know the most obvious would be in the case of something like Stalinism and the in the communistic sense or something like fascism. But I think now we're we're coming to a, a new kind of totalitarianism. I, I, I would even use that word. Um, and it's a strong word, but I, I would use it. And this is kind of techno-financial capitalistic totalitarianism that's being disseminated through the networks. And which is ironic because networks were presented at first in the 1990s as 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 an escape from the old modes of of hierarchy, as an escape from old modes of, um, of political oppression. And these are now remorphing into the actual form of oppression. So I, I think Facebook has a serious problem. Um, and I and and the main problem is, is that Facebook became a publicly traded corporation. So now they have a financial responsibility to, to make money for their shareholders. And the way they do that is by literally, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic in the old Marxist formulation, the, the idea of surplus value, where you, you extract value from the, the, the processes of labor, of production. And in the sense of Facebook, it's, it's almost as if they're extracting value from the, the neuro, neurological topography, from the cere cerebral topography of their usership. And this happens through um, these incredibly sophisticated algorithms that are targeted to have us buy things and click on things and, and all this stuff. So, so Facebook is, is absolutely becoming, unfortunately, slightly to totalitarian, right? But I, I think at the same time, they're aware of this, right? Because, you know, you, you, you had the whole thing with, um, oh, what was the name of that? Uh, Christopher, the, the name of the company that Steve Bannon had hired. And there was a big, huge- Yeah, I'm not thinking of it, right. Yeah, uh, last year. So, so they are aware of it, right? And I, I have actually a couple of friends that work for Facebook and these are, these are good people. These are not like uh, technocrats looking to take over, you know, but, but at the same time, Facebook is an abstract major multinational corporation. So th there, there's a logic to Facebook that is kind of progressing independent, maybe, of the people that work there. So I, I don't know what can be done. But I definitely think, though, the 1990s utopia of digital technology as a method, as, as a medium to 
you know, bring people together, to connect people, to democratize society, that myth is dying right now. It's no longer believable. Mm. And so I think that people are kind of waking up to this and whether or not there can be some kind of political will imposed to kind of uh, to, to put the brakes on a possibly very dangerous situation, I don't know. I don't know. Let it's, me it's, uh, recommend a book. Have you read Jill Abramson's Merchants of Truth? Just came out. No, I have not. It's incredible. What She's a former chief editor of the New York Times, and <clears throat> she writes, she wants to understand news today, <clears throat> the decline of newspapers, the rise of uh, digital online news. So she looks at the New York Times, the Washington Post, BuzzFeed, and Vice. And in the case of BuzzFeed and Vice, well, in all four cases, she goes into great detail of how they began, how they set up their digital presence, how it worked, uh, what the uh, technologies are, how the networking is done. And it's really insightful stuff. I found it very useful. You know, I got an idea for a business. <laughs> what if we started a social network where you're limited to 100 friends and you only see posts from those 100 people, nothing else? <laughs> I think that, you know, something like that could succeed today because Facebook is no longer that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe it could. Maybe it could. Anything's possible, right? <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you, uh, jumping uh, aside, um, you did a book on heroin. What sure. you saw in that book and does do your insights relate to what you've just been talking about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think heroin is the, the, the rise of, you know, there, there have been different historical explosions of opiate heroin addiction in American history. You know, a, a, a main one was the returning soldiers from the Civil War, where there was a major opiate morphine um, addictive epidemic. But the one we're dealing with now began in the late 90s with the introduction of a pharmaceutical drug called OxyContin by a Connecticut-based pharmaceutical firm, Purdue Pharma. It was released onto the market in 1996. And that eventually morphed in, let's say, 2008, 2009 into a full-blown heroin crisis. So it's, it's been about a 20-year run of the, the modern or the contemporary opiate crisis that's affected American society. And that has absolutely run hand-in-hand hand with the development of network technology, social media, this, this, this new development of, of digital globalized capitalism. So there, there's an absolute relationship between opiate addiction as it currently exists in American society and what has happened to the individual psyche, to local community, to the basic productive forces of the economy and how those things have all kind of been happening at the same time. And it has given way to this very tragic um, which it's a very, very serious problem. Um, these towns in Ohio and West Virginia and just middle American towns have been absolutely devastated um, from this epidemic. 
And at the same time, these towns have been absolutely devastated. I mean, you look at these old the, these towns in, in Ohio or Indiana or Michigan. I mean, these towns were they they were once set centers of production. And what I mean by that is that things were made. There, there was a factory, which was the emblematic e economic space of industrialized capitalism. It, it was located in time and space. It made things in a, in a community. And that community was tied in to those productive relations. And, and what has happened as those, they've been outsourced to China, to Indonesia, wherever, like the, those communities have been devastated because there's no longer any production happening there. And the whole economy, you know, part-time web coder, whatever. But so that those two things have happened simultaneously, the breakdown of the local economy and the rise of opiate addiction. They're they're absolutely related. Uh, interesting. I, I, I see a, maybe it's in today's New York Times. I don't have it in front of me, but there's a description of a spiking in suicides and addiction going on at this very moment. Uh, maybe starting to ramp up, as you say, in the 1990s. Sure, and sure. I, you know, some people become addicted just because of the chemical hijacking of their brain. I sure. know I tried to smoke cigarettes in college and I just couldn't do it. You know, <laughs> it just never took other people one cigarette and they're addicted for life. So there are differences in people. And, uh, but aside from that, I think, as you described, the bigger issue is that we have uh, a need to work. We have a need to be productively useful in our lives. Yeah. And even if everybody is taken care of um, economically, uh, whether it's food stamps or welfare or living in your parents' basement, uh, that's not enough. And more welfare, food stamps, et cetera, doesn't solve the problem of people need to be productively engaged. Sure, and sure. I think that aside and just, from- And, and, and yeah. not just, econ I mean, of course you wanna be productive, you wanna have a job and you wanna work and, and you wanna have something like that, but you also wanna be socially engaged and culturally engaged and civically engaged. And that has all been, progressively decimated as well, in addition to the to the collapse of real production. So it's it's a combination of and and to your point, of course, people have certain neurological or genetic dispositions that make them more susceptible to addiction. We can never discount that. But um, there is a social flavor that has that has mediated or colored this contemporary iteration of the of the heroin crisis, 21st So how would you describe the breakdown in social and cultural engagement? Well, this has been happening for a long time. I was just actually watching um, one of Adam Curtis's wonderful documentary films, The Century of Self. And uh, it's a four part documentary. And in the, in the first, um, in the first of the segments, it's an analysis of Sigmund Freud's nephew. His name is Edward Bernays. And he was essentially the father of American public relations. And he essentially invented American consumerism. He, he, he invented this idea. You know, 
before the 1920s, the overwhelming majority of, of American people, their shopping or their looking for goods was based solely on necessity, solely. They, they, they needed this because it was functional for their lives. And he totally transformed that by introducing some of Freud's psychological theories into corporate America to unleash desire, to, un to unleash this idea that the American citizen could become an American consumer. So this was the origins of that. And then that idea was jacked and put on steroids with some of the theories that were developed in actually the, the military industrial complex, the military industrial think tanks of the Cold War, with the application of game theory and cybernetics into the socio-political and economic field. It transformed, like the whole idea of humanity has been radically transformed over the past 50 years, where we've see people now, or at least corporations do as individuals that are motivated by these the by game theory by these selfish genetic desires that are totally disconnected from any communal substance so when when you and and then that that basic cybernetic game theory was put on even more steroids with the advent of network technologies and the internet in the 1990s so you you you've just seen this continual breakdown, this atomization, this fragmentation, this collapse of the social body, where in the present, we're digital consumers, we're individuals who get their needs fulfilled through the market, mediated by digital technologies. And that, that has created a psychological crisis, an economic crisis, and most importantly, I think a symbolic crisis. Actually, maybe most importantly, to go back to what I was saying in the beginning, a narrative crisis. We don't tell stories anymore. Our, our sense of shared stories and common sense has been obliterated. And, and now we're like these, well, we're, we're, we're looked at as almost like these machinic um, genetic individuals um, and w without any communal narrative structure. So I think that's what's happening. And, that, and, and when you do that, when you disconnect people from family, from community, from nature, then of course they're going to turn to heroin. Absolutely. Or they're going to turn to Prozac or, or, or these or, or whatever kind of um, psychotropic drug they can do, you, you can give them. So, uh, so there. Go ahead. Yeah. So uh, very interesting what you're describing. I'm right now in the midst of editing a memoir of my mother about growing up in uh, Queen, Ridgewood, Queens, New York from 1922. She was born in 1916. And she writes okay. a memoir of 1922 to 1932 and describes okay. community, family, how they lived. Uh, yep. You know, the book opens with, you know, 6.30 a.m. and Tantalina gets up and starts the, the coal stove. Uh, sure, that sure. kind of thing. That's and uh, so uh, she's very astute. She's the first woman to go to Columbia Law School, et cetera. And later, she, about 30 years ago, she comes home from being out on errands 
with some shopping bags. And she says, what is this? What did I just do? You know, and she looks at, she just spent $50, which was a lot of money 30 years ago. So she says she takes, she dumps everything out on the dining room table to see what the hell did I just buy? And among other things, she sees a hairbrush. She says, when I was a girl, you had one hairbrush. It lasted your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't buy hairbrushes. <laughs> yeah. And so um, now I'm also thinking of uh, two people uh, roughly her age, touch older, Paul and Percival Goodman. And Paul Goodman was uh, a figure like yourself, cultural commentator in now, the 1960s. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Paul Goodman. He's, yeah. he's actually one of the he he's one of the co-founders. I mean, he, he was a polymath, but one of the great things he did, he was one of the co-founders of Gestalt therapy. Right, which is a kind right. of radical so progressive brother, form. His yeah. brother Percival Goodman was an architect. <laughs> Two of them wrote a book called Communitas around mm-hmm. 1948-49. And what they were doing is they said, look at these radical new disruptive conditions we're living in in 1949. You know, like for them, as disruptive as ours is for today, I guess. And then they said, what should we do about it? What should a community look like? What should a family look like? What should a household look like? And I've been critical of my colleagues ever since that, hey, we should write a book like that today. Now, since I'm also a Joseph Campbell fan, and you've used several times the word uh, narrative, I think uh, we should be critical of our academic colleagues for not proposing new narratives and mythologies for our circumstances. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Totally right, agree. Your next book. <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of of Goodman and Campbell, so that's that's some nice uh, common th- common ground that we have there. Great. Uh, so you. And, uh, uh, Interestingly yeah. enough, you know, one of, and this is a great example of, of um, how narratives have been progressively destroyed in this culture of neoliberal techno-capitalism that we're living in. But one of Campbell's famous maxims was, follow your bliss, right? And, and, and when you take that at face value, I mean, of course, it's, it's a wonderful saying. It's a, it's a saying that we should all do in, in one way or another. But the way that saying, now when, when, when Campbell was saying this in the 1950s at Sarah Lawrence University, enveloped in still in the middle of the, the industrial style capitalism that was structuring society, that was somewhat of a radical statement, follow your bliss. You know, a lot of people didn't do that back then because you were born into certain structures that you kind of stayed with. Now today, this is the, the, this is what society tells everybody to do. This is what Tony Robbins tells you to do. This is what Madison Avenue tells you to do every day. So that that total, it's it's perverted that Campbell maxim, and it's taken it into this hyper consumeristic culture where following your bliss is no longer a, a, a spiritual direction of of how one can live an, an, an authentic life, and it has become a way of becoming the most efficient consumer possible. Enjoy yourself, follow your bliss. So this is a, a great way of, of how a, a potential narrative structure to link people together has become a hyper-individualistic, 
narcissistic maxim on, on how do you live your life. Because if, if you walk through Manhattan today, if you walk through West Hollywood today, all you're going to see is a, a million people, everyone following their bliss. And that is, and that has showed itself to be absolutely catastrophic to most certainly urban life. I mean, I've, I've written two books on gentrification. So, I mean, gentrification in a way is just a city where everyone's following their bliss, but not in the authentic Campbell sense, in the most perverted way of appropriating, appropriating that term for pure consumeristic, narcissistic ends, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah, so since we're piling on, <laughs> uh, let me put what you just described in yet another way. Uh, a few years ago, Tom Brokaw wrote a book called The Greatest Generation. Yeah, I read it. And it talked, you know, it, it's described as, as talking about the people who survived the Great Depression and won World War II. Yep. And that's my parents' generation. Yep. But they also envisioned the modern world. They built the modern research university, social security, sure. security exchange commission, interstate highway system. They went to the moon. Yep. Uh, uh, there's this endless list of what they did. And when they were young saying, um, we need to build a security exchange commission, my father was involved in that, or we need to go to the moon, or we need to... Um, uh, whatever, there was no guarantee they were going to be successful. Uh, yeah. They just knew that's what was needed and that's what they dedicated their lives to. Yeah. Now, I turn to my students. I teach in an art, architecture, and design school. Wonderful students studying to be architects, uh, graphic designers, filmmakers, artists, etc. And uh, I just recently gave the assignment uh, five years after you graduate, what do you hope to be doing? And most of them working for a company doing my design work. And, uh, okay, that's fine. But, hey, anybody, change the world. <laughs> yeah. Go to Mars, set up a colony it. on Mars, something, you know, invent the next generation of computer. It, there's no vision. There's no dreaming. Yeah. There's no vision. It's they want to be good people, which to them means not working for a cigarette company yeah. and uh, and being you know responsible to their family. But beyond that, there's no dreaming, striving, et cetera. And I'm critical uh, not of them, but of my school for not structuring their education to um inculcate in them uh thinking that way sure and you know to i agree with you but in in their defense you know the greatest generation didn't have this thing called student debt right they didn't have this thing called um ten thousand dollars of of credit card fees with uh with rising interest rates so they were able to think and they also didn't have this rhythm of network technologies bearing down on their on their mind every day okay now i'm going so, to give you a, i'm going to give you a hard time but Here's hold on parents but, just, but but just let me finish for one second okay. now the these kids when you have whatever they have in student debt let's say seventy thousand dollars in student debt when they graduate they can't be thinking about changing the world 
they have to think about getting a job and paying back their debt. So I agree with you that there is an absolute shortage in authentic thought today, a vision of, of thinking big. But at the same time, the system that has been created has trapped these kids in this very narrow version of the world, which is go to college, most likely take on some student debt, and then go get a job to pay it off. So it's, it's a trap that, so what has to change is the structure itself. And when the structure changes, that will open up a space where you'll have a generation of kids thinking in terms that your your parents did, my my grandparents did. You know, my both of my grandfathers were, lived through the depression, were World War II, and you know they were part of the greatest generation. And you know, the greatest generation. I mean, they they were great. There's no doubt about it. I have a lot of respect for those people for for what they did. I mean, it certainly wasn't perfect. There were some problems back then, but they made do with what they had, and and they accomplished a lot. And you know, I'm kind of I'm part of what's called a micro generation, people born between 1978 and 1985, not quite millennial, but we're definitely not Generation X either. So I, I kind of find myself a, a bit generational less. I'm, I'm not quite part of anything. So I, I kind of have this free agent thing where I can kind of see things maybe a bit differently than being immersed in a specific generation. But the millennial generation, which is a couple of years after me, they've been given a real hard time. You know, and they've been picked on a lot by the generations that have come before. And, you know, some of it's not unwarranted. I mean, the millennial generation is absolutely narcissistic and self-centered and mediated by, you know, almost cy cyborgian in their relationship with technology. But at the same time, it's like they were born into this. This is what the previous generations imposed on these kids. So I, I do feel that although the, the, the criticism of the millennial generation is warranted to a point, it's also unfair because this is the world that they've been given. This is the world that they've been forced to, to exist in. So we, we definitely have to look at changing the overall structure of things. And I think this recent election, not, not that I necessarily agree with a, a lot of these these new young congressmen that have just been elected, like most, most, most specifically would be Ocasio-Cortez, but I definitely agree with her critique that things are not right, right, that there is a problem. There is a big problem. So I think you're, 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 you're seeing of, of a new type of collective social consciousness that mirrors maybe what happened uh, in the New Deal generation or what happened in the 1960s with Kennedy and Johnson. So let's see what happens, you know, but um, anyway, back to you. Yeah. So I totally agree with you about the college and the student debt. And it used to be, you know, you you graduate. Well, the potential was there in the past. You graduate college, go bum around Europe for a year and figure out what you want to do. Yeah. And uh, you can't do that if you have to be making payments on your college debt, you know, the moment you graduate. Absolutely. So I agree about that. And in addition, uh, <clears throat> I've uh, uh, written quite a few times uh, about a fantasy where, you know, when I got out of college, uh, both my late wife and I were architects. And in the late 60s, the New York Times help wanted section was help wanted male, help wanted female. 
and today that's illegal. Uh, well, I think it's today what we could do is make it illegal for a prospective employer to ask if you have a college education, but instead asks you to show certificate certification in skills needed for the job, whether it's word processing or programming or um, you know HR management or whatever you're going yeah. to be doing. And uh, and with that, now if that were the world we were in, where it was illegal for a prospective employer to ask if you have a college education, but they could ask, do you have a skill? If a young person came to you and said, I have four years and $100,000, what should I do? <laughs> you probably would not advise them to blow it on college. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I actually think in 25 years from now, the overwhelming majority of colleges in America are going to be defunct. I don't think that this system that we have in place right now is sustainable in any way, shape, or form. I think you'll always have, you know, the, the Ivy League schools, they'll always be around. But I think that the basic structure of education that has been sold almost as a commodity since after the Second World War, it's a totally unsustainable model of educating a population. And I think that there's apps and you know, so many of these colleges run as if they're for, even though they claim they're, they're nonprofits in practice, they absolutely run as if they're capitalist enterprises. And I think that's not, when you do that and you're also trying to educate somebody, there's an innate conflict of interest. So my prediction is that 25, 30 years from now, the overwhelming majority of colleges in America are not going to be functioning as they are now. And to be honest with you, the student debt crisis in America is just a simmering pot about to boil over. So the whole, the, the whole system is unsustainable. It cannot last much longer. And eventually there's going to be some kind of breaking point where it is revealed for the, the uh, pipe dream that it is. And that's really what it is. It's yeah, totally, describe. I mean, you're, you're educating. I mean, you're charging children, children, 18 year old children, $50,000 a year to go to you to, to, to get, let's say, a um, a degree in liberal arts. For the privilege of hearing me lecture. <laughs> and, and this is not 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 only is it ethically catastrophic, morally wrong. But it does practically it doesn't work. It doesn't work practically. So I think you're going to see a lot of more people going into the like the building trades, becoming a plumber. And, and I think this is wonderful, you know, and I think if you can if you can give people a good high school education, a basic education in history, art, science, mathematics, and they go into the trade, that's fine. I mean, listen, 100 years ago. When. 95% of people did not go to college. If you went to, let's say I'm, I'm from Boston. If you went to Boston in 1905, 90% of the people living in Boston did not go to college. But I can tell you right now, every single person was reading the morning newspaper in Boston in 1905. You had, you had a reasonably educated population. Whereas today, everyone went to college and people are more clueless than ever. I mean, if you went to Boston in 1905, you had engaged 
neighborhoods of proper political subjects. People were engaged politically. People were engaged civically. Everyone, and I mean everyone, from children up to people in nursing homes, read the paper in the morning. They knew what was happening in the world. This is not happening today. It's almost the reverse today, where everyone's going to college, but then there's this mass ignorance spreading throughout the population where no one even knows what's going on with their next door neighbor. So, and, and again, this is a function of the technological frame that is infiltrated and mediated civil society. It's not producing educated people. It's not producing connected people. It's not producing empath uh, compassionate people. It's producing narcissistic, disconnected, fragmented population. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with, with, with what you were saying about the situation at your college. It's, it's, it's not good. It's definitely not good. Well, I think, I think your point is well made. My, I have a niece who has, lives in Germany, and her daughter just graduated college. And most people in Germany do not go to college. The high school education is extremely sophisticated and thorough. She yeah. had courses in philosophy and religion. Mm -hmm. uh, you only go to college if you, you, if you intend to be a lawyer or a doctor, you don't go yeah. to college. You yep. go to med school or law school. Mm -hmm. You only go to college if you're going to be a professor. And sure. in high school, um, in the last two couple of years, you spend half the day in an apprenticeship. So you might spend half the day at Mercedes-Benz or half the day uh, working at a hairdresser so that when you finish high school, you're ready to go into a job. You have the skills yeah. you need and you've yeah. had an excellent uh, liberal arts education. So it's I'm, totally doable. Think that's and you know and part of the problem too in America is that there there's this there's this uh, really kind of subtle passive aggressive shame that we've imposed on workers. Ah, you're a worker. You're you. That must mean you're not very intelligent, or that must mean you're not very successful. And that's been happening in America since the 1980s. And I, I think what really has to happen is we have to give back basic dignity to the. To, I mean, workers are the. These are the people that. These are the most important people in any society. The workers, the firefighters, the cops, the nurses, the teachers. I mean, these are the people, these are, to use the line from the gospel, these are the salt of the earth. These are the people that make our, the world run. And what you've seen in American society as it's transformed into this neoliberal celebrity society, you know, the, the Kardashians don't respect workers, right? The, the, the investment bankers and art dealers in Manhattan don't really respect the workers. So we have to create a new culture where we start to think about what, how the world really works. And the world definitely doesn't work like a reality television show or like a Wall Street bank. It works like regular people living their lives, you know? Um, so I think part of that, in addition to the practical um, challenge of, of restarting trade schools and, and, and putting that back into a high school education, but it's also having have showing respect and dignity to workers in our public discourse in our in our cinema you know for instance Roma the film that just came out last year I, I found that the, the the critiques are the the analysis of that film so interesting people were almost acting like uh, they had just seen an alien 
you know, like they had just seen some, uh, some mi miracle that a domestic worker was treated with dignity. You know, I mean, the Hollywood Reporter article or analysis of that film was like, wow, we have to treat these domestic workers like they're human beings. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what we should always have been doing, you know? So this, um, this fantasy world that we've been living in, this, this neoliberal globalized fantasy world that has totally and utterly disrespected workers across not just America, but across the world for the past 30 years, this is what has to change. So it has to be a practical change, but also an ideological narrative change as well. Okay, so listen, uh, we wrap up in about five or 10 minutes here. Uh, this is John Lobel. You're listening to Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. My guest is Brian Francis Culkin, who's a writer, theorist, and film director. And uh, Francis, we're going to have to do, uh, Brian, we're going to have to do a lot more of these shows because uh, in a few minutes we have left. Tell us about your book, Meaning of Trump, and then maybe we can talk about that more another time. Sure, yeah. No, thank, thank you very much for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you, and I'd be happy to come on any other time you, you would uh, invite me. Yeah, the, the Meaning of Trump was a book that I wrote on 2000, I think it was published in January last year in 2018. But it was a, it was a basically an ideological critique of the Trump presidency how on earth um, Donald Trump could become president of the, of the leader of the free world, the president of the United States. Um, and it was uh, a book that tried to in, give meaning, right? It's the meaning of Trump. What, what does this mean? Um, it's funny, there's, there's a great scene in um, Steven Spielberg's film, Back to the Future, 1985 film, when Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly, goes back to 1955, and when he tracks down his, his old friend, Doc Brown, and tells him he's from the future, Brown's kind of testing him out. He says, oh yeah, you're from the future? Then who's the president then in the, in the 1980s? And, and, Mc, and Michael J. Fox says without missing a beat, Ronald Reagan. And, and <laughs> says, Ronald Reagan, the actor? Get out of here. You know, he, he can't believe it, right? So I think it's a similar thing. Can, can you imagine going back to 1998, like traveling back in time and telling somebody from the future and the person says, okay, yeah, well, who's president? You say, ah, Donald Trump. Could you imagine the reaction ah. in 1998 being told that in 20 years, Donald Trump would be president? So the question that I pose in the book is how did this happen? How did this degradation of our political infrastructure becomes so worn down to the point that a Manhattan real estate developer, a reality television star, um, a person with absolutely zero political experience could become president. So that's what essentially the book is about. And I, I put the blame basically on what we've been talking about for the past hour, that the application of neoliberal globalization, the application of a kind of a pure techno-capitalist framework to mediate society has degraded our political, our communal, our social, our public spaces to the point where someone like Donald Trump could tweet his way into presidency. And I, I have, and one of the things I do in the book too is I absolutely 
push back on the on the liberal idea or the liberal critique that the only reason why Donald Trump won was because America is this inherently racist, xenophobic country. And, and of course, some of Donald Trump's supporters were like that. There's no doubt about it. But what the liberal critique cannot fathom is that the very policies that they've abided by for the past 25 years are directly responsible for opening up the space where someone like Donald Trump could become president. So we, we cannot displace the rise of Donald Trump onto, you know, the archetypal Southern racist white supporter. This is just not empirically true. It's definitely partly the case. There's no doubt about it, but it's not the real story. The real story is that we have grown into a country dominated by these powerful tech companies, by these abstract, by this living through this abstract computational logic that has progressively denigrated our psyche in the form of an opiate crisis. Um, our sense of narration of who we are as Americans. And Donald Trump, you know, Donald Trump, people think he's stupid. And, and in a way, he's certainly not very intellectually sophisticated. But from another perspective, the man is a genius. I mean, he, he truly is. And he, um, <laughs> you know, he tweeted his way into the presidency. So that's what the book is basically about. I, I gave a very short description, of a synopsis. But the book is an, an account, a, a narration of how this man became president and, and what it means for both contemporary American society and also global society. I mean, listen, we're, we're, we're coming into a very dangerous time here. There's no doubt about it. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens. You know, we just don't know. But uh, that's, that's what it's about. So um, my guest has been Brian Francis Culkin. He was just talking about his book, The Meaning of Trump. You can find it online on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And... Brian, definitely, we need to do this again. And uh, I've, of course, <clears throat> been thinking about all the issues we've been talking about. And uh, maybe we could frame for a future discussion uh, a uh, positive vision for the future. What should we be doing? I would love that. So thank you. And any last words for our audience? No, I'm I'm very no, just thank you for having me on. I'm I'm very grateful to be able to appear on your show and 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 I really enjoyed speaking with you and I would love to come on again if if right. you have me. Thank you and uh, see everybody again next Monday. Bye.